give uh, Toria and Al a good round of applause. I really appreciate them filling in for Darby. And Scotty, let's give him a round of applause. He's filling in on slides because Justin and Chelsea are out. And uh, the slides I gave you, sorry about that. That's my fault. Scotty did a great job, though, making sense of my madness. So thank you, Scotty. So let's, before we get started, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will remind us of your love. And Lord, I pray that if there's people who aren't followers of you yet, Lord, I pray that you would just convince them that you love them. And Lord, maybe if there's someone who's been following for a long time, you just remind them of how much you love them. That we might walk away from here knowing that Jesus is with us and for us and he loves us. And I pray all these things like I believe you would pray. Amen. So one of my first seminary classes, his professor came in and he, he started talking about some health problems that his son and daughter-in-law were having and he starts sharing about the troubles that he's had in his life and describing some of the, the difficulties that he's faced as a, as a um, minister down in Panama and then he came back to the States and served as a pastor and now he was a pastor and a seminary professor and uh, the statement that he said after he said all this haunted me for years. Like for years I wrestled with what he said because I'm like, is that true? Is that really the tagline of Christianity? Is that really... Oh, I forgot we have an intro video. Okay. Sorry, Scotty, I just jumped in and forgot all about that. So, um... Anyways, so this seminary professor, he made this statement and it, and it haunted me, really. I was like, so here I am training to be a minister, to be a Christian minister, and I'm like, is this really what Christianity is about? It, his words troubled me, and for years I really spent a lot of time going back and forth like, is this really true? And I was reading people, and I was reading the Bible, and I was studying things, and I was just experiencing life and trying to figure out, is what he said true? And this is what he said. This is how he started the seminary class. After he shared all this, he goes, life is hard and then you die. But there's heaven. And I'm like, really? Is that the tagline of Christianity? Life is hard, then you die. But heaven's out. And I'm like, that really uh, it, it worried me. It concerned me. I mean, at this point in my life, I'd already wrestled through doubts about Jesus. I was sure he was a historical figure. I had long ago settled that there was no one else like Jesus, what he taught and who he was. And even if the whole world was against Jesus, I was going to side with Jesus. And so I said, even if this is the tagline of Christianity, I'm still going to stay with Jesus. But I'm like, is this really the tagline of Christianity? I had decided that if this was true, I was going to stay with Jesus because, you know, he's true and I had to side with truth even if I didn't like it. But I was like, is that what Christianity is? Life is hard and then you die. I heard a lot of that growing up in different churches and this uh, professor said this, but I really think he was wrong. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what I think the tagline of Christianity is. And we're going to talk about how we experience it. And uh, I just want to tell you, just because someone has a doctorate doesn't mean they don't say dumb things. <laughs> this guy had a doctorate. He's really smart about a lot of things. But I think he was wrong about this. I don't think the underlying message of Christianity is grin and bear it, and one day you'll get out of here, and things will be better in heaven. 
I think that Christianity doesn't avoid the fact that the planet is in trouble and that there's problems here. And a lot of that is because we choose selfish, destructive things. But it doesn't commiserate the fact either. I think the tagline of Christianity is joy now and forever. And so that's what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. We're going to dig into what is joy, how do we experience it, how do we position ourselves to experience it, what does the Bible talk about when it says joy. And I think the tagline of Christianity being joy is good news because everyone you meet, everyone you pass, everyone you encounter is hungry for joy. If you meet someone who doesn't want joy, they're either lying to you or they're insane. They're not in their right mind where they know what they want. I talked to a lady this week at work and uh, she was asking me, she's like, what do you do besides this? As I was mopping up some floors and she said, I said, I'm a minister. She's like, that's really weird. And uh, so I started talking to her about it and she said her church, or her husband goes to church sometimes, but she said, I wasn't born with the religious gene. I was like, do you like joy? She's like, yeah, of course I want joy. See, even people who say, I don't want anything religious, I don't want anything to do with God, I don't want church, they're looking for joy. And I think that's what Christianity is actually offering. It's offering joy. Whether or not you're religious, whether or not you're churchy, you want joy in your life. And I think joy is the most precious commodity in our world because you can't buy joy. You can't go out to Amazon, it has A to Z, but it doesn't have joy. You know, you can't purchase it for $9.99 or $9 million. There's no way you can buy it, you can't trade for it, you can't earn it. You can purchase pleasures, but you can't purchase joy. You can force certain happy moments, but joy is the most elusive desire in the universe. We all want it, but we can't get it. We can't force it, we can't control it. I think that everyone on this planet is on a journey for joy. Now, some people think that everyone on the planet is on a search for truth, but I think that some people are looking for truth, but a lot of people are like, no. Remember the movie, The Matrix? And some people are like, I'd rather just stay in The Matrix and not deal with the realities of a messed up world. I'd rather live a lie than face the hard truth. And so I think that everyone on the planet is not looking for truth. Some people are like, I want the truth even if it's hard, even if I don't. But I do believe that everyone on the planet is looking for joy. Everybody wants it, but I don't think everyone will find it. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Surprised by Joy. It's about his journey from being an atheist uh, professor to becoming a Christian thinker and writer. And in it, he draws a contrast between pleasure and happiness and the concept of joy. He says this, no one would choose pleasure over joy. He says, if you could have pleasure or joy, you would take joy. It's just deeper, it's more meaningful, it's what you really want. But he says, often it's in our power to experience pleasure whenever we want it, but joy is not under our control. And so what we do a lot of times is, the deep desire of our soul is we want joy, and we're like, but I can't figure out how to get it, I'm not experiencing it, so I'll take a cheap pleasure instead to try to get me and so over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about what is joy, how to position ourselves to experience joy, because we cannot force joy into our life. There's not an equation where I'm like, if you just do A plus B plus C, divide by X, equals joy. Like I like when it's things like that. I'm like, oh, follow this process, and then you get this. Joy always has to be given. But I think we can position ourselves to experience it and enjoy it. 
See, so often I think I settle and I think you probably settle for distracting pleasures. Well, what our souls are longing for is a lasting joy, something deeper, something more meaningful, something more satisfying. So first we have to do some definitions. Because if you look up the definition of joy, just in your normal Webster's Dictionary or Merriman or who, whatever dictionary you prefer, it'll say joy is an intense pleasure or happiness. But in the spiritual sense, the way that the Bible talks about joy, it is a deeper thing than just this simple definition. Neither pleasure or happiness fully capture the idea, the spiritual concept of joy. See, happiness is when pleasant things happen to you. It's right there in the word. Happiness happen, right? When pleasant things happen to you, that's happiness. You're like, oh, this felt so good, I got a raise. A pleasant thing happened, so I'm happy. Now, have you ever had this feeling when something happy happens, and you're like, this isn't going to last, <laughs> right? Well, that's true, right? We've all lived long enough to know that happy, happy things happening to us don't last because there's going to be something negative after this. Joy is a through line. Whether things are happening pleasantly or unpleasantly, joy is a through line. Joy is a positive emotion even in the midst of grief or sorrow or unpleasant situations. I think that joy is most valuable in the moments that are most bleak. Joy is not the absence of pain, but a present reality of hope in the midst of pain. That's why joy is so valuable. Now, joy doesn't mean you don't grieve. Like sometimes in our culture today, we hate any type of negative, unpleasant emotion. And so we're like, just give me a pill so I never have to cry. You know, or when I watch a really sad movie with Darby, um, I'm like, it's real dusty in here. And some of this dust is getting in my eye. I'm, I'm not crying though, you know, I'm, I'm trying to avoid embracing a painful emotion. Grief is the only proper response to losing something we love. And so grief is a wholly appropriate response when we lose something we love. Jesus wept. It's the right response to certain circumstances in our broken world. But joy is found even in the midst of grief. And sometimes we avoid joy or we miss joy because we try to avoid or medicate the grief away. Sometimes we have to walk through grief to find joy. Now we're going to look at a passage here um, and we're going to look at several passages over the next few weeks where joy is talked about and it's mentioned, and we're going to look at the surrounding passages and kind of find out what is God talking about when he talks about joy? How do we position ourselves to receive it? And what should joy look like in our lives? Now, this word joy in the New Testament comes from the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and uh, the word is kara, and it means a calm delight, a calm delight even in the midst of hard things. And the idea is used to describe a feeling of looking at natural beauty. Sometimes in the Psalms, the word joy is used in the Hebrew to describe when you're looking at a grand landscape. You see a mountain and there's a sunrise behind it and you feel something well up inside of you. Joy. And uh, it can be also used in the Psalms when it references having a great friend who stand by you stands by you and is for you and with you and you have this joy about this friendship that you've had over a long period of time but it's always tied up in the idea of hoping for a better future because your destiny isn't tied to your present troubles we always see this um, through line every time joy is mentioned that there's a hope be 
beyond what you're currently going through, that what you're going through isn't wasted, that there's something bigger and better beyond. And so this is why I think the tagline for Christianity is joy. Because of something that Jesus says in John chapter 15, starting in verse 8. In verse 8, Jesus says, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And I have told you these things so that, your jo so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. So this passage tells us several things about joy and about how to position ourselves to experience it. First of all, it tells us God is the source of all joy. Every joy that you've had in your life has been a gift from God. Whether or not you believed in God at the time, whether or not you were following Jesus at the time, every joy in your life has been a gift from God. He's the source of all joy. You don't believe in God? No worries. God believes in you, and he's giving you gifts of joy. He has brought joys into your life to be experienced and enjoyed. Every time you've gone looking for joy, you've actually been looking for God because he's the source of joy. And some people might, might say, hey, I don't have the religious gene. I haven't been looking for God. I'm not spiritually seeking at all. I'm like, are you looking for joy? Most people say, yes, I want joy. Then whether you realize it or not, you're looking for God because he is the source of all joy. Bruce Marshall in a fictional story that he wrote, he has this great line. He says, the young man who rings the bell at a brothel is unconsciously looking for God. He's like, I need something. I'm looking for something beyond myself. He's looking in the wrong spot, but that searching, that longing for something to satisfy this emptiness in his soul is actually a quest for God. He's looking in the wrong places, but hopefully the emptiness there will ultimately lead him to a place where he finds Jesus. Now this passage also tells us that joy is always the byproduct of relationships. Notice what Jesus says here. He starts with God. He says, God loves me. I love you. He says, if you want to experience my love, you've got to stay here so that you can get the love that I want to show you coming from God. He's like, we're connected here. And joy is always the byproduct of relationships. Your most joyful moments in life are going to be the moments that are connected to relationship, your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. And notice here the action word to convey love or to convey joy is always love. It is through love that we experience joy. And these four small verses, Jesus packs in a lot. And so we're going to kind of unpack these things and look at what he says. He says in verse 11 here, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you. Jesus is the source of all joy because he's God, and your joy may be complete or full. He wants us to experience joy. He wants us to experience the joy that he has and that he's offering to give us. And so he says he's telling us these things. What things? The things that came in the verses before. So we have to back up here and look at what he says. Um, according, to God, according to Jesus here, God is primarily a being of indescribable joy. Now think about how you, what comes into your mind when you think about God. A.W. Tozer said that's the most important thing about us, because it will define the way that we live and think. 
what we think about God. The first thing that comes into your mind when you think about God is like flames blazing off of its head and he's got a big club. And he's like, just do something wrong today so I can hit you. I really want to hit somebody. Please do something wrong. That's sometimes how people think about God. Or maybe you're like an old, old man and he's super out of touch with what's going on. Like he looks like an old boomer and you're like, come on, God, you really don't know what's happening in today's world. What if you thought about God like this? He's a being of indescribable joy. Like sometimes we think of him, he's holy, he's set apart, he's distant. Or sometimes we think about him and like he's just ready to bring down some fire and brimstone on people. But what if you thought of him as the source of all joy? He is the most joyous being in existence. Think about the next time you pray to him. Or the next time some red-faced, screaming person describes an angry God waiting to clobber you every time you mess up. God is a being of pure joy who longs to share his joy with us. Remember, the first thing that existed before anything in our universe was a relationship. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They loved each other and enjoyed perfect joy. And they wanted to share that with us. Now, Jesus is teaching us these things so we might know the joy that he has. That's what he says in verse 11. And so that we might experience it fully. And he says that he is telling us some things here so that we can have joy. So let's work backwards here to figure out what we actually have to do to uh, position ourselves to experience joy. He says that in verse 10, in order to experience this joy, we must remain in his love. In, in order to um, have joy, we have to position ourselves to experience his love. Now, this isn't saying that his love for us changes. He's like, you do these things and I'll love you and then you'll get joy. No, no, he's saying you can distance yourself from my love, but my love for you is constant. No matter what you do, I'm going to love you. You might say, I hate God. I had a friend down in Tennessee and I was telling him about um, Jesus and he had some ideas about God that some people had told him uh, that didn't really look anything like Jesus and uh, I started talking to him about Jesus and he said I hate God and he pointed his finger up at heaven and he says if you're there God I hate you and I said well even though you say that God's looking back and he's saying he loves you and he says how do I know that and I said because he's speaking through me and he wants you to know that I love you and he loves you um, so you can't do something where God won't love you. But we can do things to distance ourselves from experiencing his love. And that's what Jesus is talking about. When my aunt was a teenager, she ran away from home. My grandparents still loved her very much, but she could no longer enjoy the benefits of that love. By distancing herself from her parents, from her family, she positioned herself to avoid their love. Did she get any hugs? No. Did she have an allowance? No. Did she have a house to live in? No. Did she have food to eat? No. She was on her own, but their love for her remained. They looked for her, they wanted to find her, and eventually they were reunited and she began to enjoy the benefits of the love that didn't change, but she had distanced herself from. We can do that same thing in a spiritual sense. We can position ourselves to avoid God's love rather than to experience his love. God keeps loving us, but often we position ourselves to avoid his love. Now, sometimes we take self-destructive actions that distance us from experiencing God's love, and then we wonder why we can't feel God's love or hear his voice. 
Sometimes people tell me, they're like, I really want to hear from God. I really want to feel that he loves me. And I'm like, are you doing anything to spiritually deafen yourself to his voice? Are you doing anything to spiritually distance yourself from his love? Now, I wasn't in the military, uh, but I played a lot of Call of Duty. So, same thing, right? right? Yeah, yeah I've been there. Same? Yeah, okay. The military guys have agreed it's exactly the same. So, um, in Call of Duty, they have flashbangs. There are these grenades that you throw, and when they go off, it's a bright white light and a ringing noise, and you can't see anything, and you just spray your gun wildly, hoping to hit something. And you know what always happens when the light and the ringing noise goes away? I'm dead. And I'm laying there, and I'm waiting for a respawn. I think often we set off spiritual flashbangs in our life, and it's a bright white light and we can't see anything in a spiritual sense. It's a ringing noise and we can't hear anything in a spiritual sense. We're like, God, where are you? And he's like, I'm right beside you and I still love you. And we're like, I can't feel you and I can't hear you. Because we keep doing self-destructive things that are deafening us and blinding us to God's love. We can't tell up from down or right from left, and we can't hear, hear him whispering, I love you, I'm with you, I'm for you, I'm right here. When a flashbang goes off, someone could be right next to you and you wouldn't know. Someone could be shouting, I love you, and I wouldn't hear it. Some of us keep setting off spiritual flashbangs and we're missing that God has been saying over and over again in our lives that he loves us and wants us to experience his joy. Now Jesus explains here that we lean into the love of God when we keep the commands of Jesus. Now he says in verse 11, I've told you these things so that you can have the joy that I have. And then he says in verse 10, if you keep my commands, you remain in my love, as, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. And then in verse 9, he says, my father has loved me and I have loved you. Remain in my love. And he says in verse 10, you do this by keeping my commands. Or if we can sum it up by verse 8, he says, you do this by proving to be my disciples. Jesus explains that we lean into the love of God by keeping the commands of Jesus. Now, he doesn't love us because we keep the commands, but we experience his love. We position ourselves to feel his love when we keep the commands. When we actually live like disciples, we will feel his love and experience his joy. That's what he says in verse 8. He says, my father is glorified with this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. What does that mean, produce much fruit? He's using an extended metaphor here about a plant, a vine that's growing. And uh, he says there's some people who say, I'm with Jesus, but they don't live and love anything like Jesus. And he says, if you live and love like me, you prove that you're actually a student of the way that I lived. You're actually a student of the way that I live and love. That's what disciple means. And he says, if you're actually living and loving like me, you're going to experience the love that I have for you and the love that God has for you, and you're going to experience my joy. So we might sum it up like this. Becoming a student of the way that Jesus lived and loved allows us to feel the love of God and experience supernatural joy. Now, when we live and love in a way that's opposite of the way that Jesus lived and loved, we lean away from the loving embrace of God. We distance ourselves from his love and we blind our eyes and our ears to see how he loves us and hear him say, I love you. When we distance ourselves from the love of God, we also distance ourselves from joy. There is no meaningful, no lasting joy that doesn't come from God. The closer you run to Jesus, the closer you're running to joy. 
The closer you run to Jesus, the closer you're running to experience the love that God has for you. How Jesus feels about us doesn't change, but our ability to enjoy his love that he's freely offering changes as we distance ourselves from Jesus. So joy is first experienced in relationship. First your relationship with God and then through your relationship with others. Notice what Jesus says here in verse 12. This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus says, once you understand and experience my love, you're going to be able to love other people the same way. And so this tells me something about the fact that when I don't feel loved by God, it's because I've distanced myself from the ways of Jesus. When I can't love other people, it's because I've distanced myself from the love of God. The more I experience God's love for me, Jesus' love for me, the better I'll be able to share that love towards other people. And so in my life, when I'm feeling unloved, when I'm feeling unworthy, when I'm feeling not valuable, I've probably leaned away from the loving presence of God by avoiding the way that Jesus lived and loved. If I hate or struggle to love someone around me, it's because I've leaned away from the loving presence of God. God, according to this passage, loves you and wants you to experience joy. And we do that through a relationship with Jesus Christ and by loving other people. He loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ into the world, who died in our place so that we might have a relationship with God. God took on human form to invite us into a relationship of love and joy forever. And not even death could stop the love of God because he came back to life and he invites everyone to become a student of the way that he lived in love and experience the love of God and share his love with others. So as we come to the end and we think about, so, so what I do with this, okay, Alex, I, I want to experience joy. You say that's by having a relationship with Jesus and by becoming a student of the way that he lived and loved. So what do I do today? Well, I think one of the first things we have to ask is, is there any spiritual flashbangs that are going off in my life? Do I need to repent of anything? It's a, it's a Bible word, repent. You know, nobody says that. Like when you cut somebody off, you're like, I should repent for that. You know, you don't say that. <laughs> But it means turning a new direction. And sometimes I don't even realize some of the things I'm doing. And that's why I have a lovely wife named Darby. And she walks up to me and she's like, hey, do you realize you said this? I'm like, no, I didn't say that. And she's like, here's an audio recording because you said it on Sunday. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry that I said that. Um, and so sometimes what I do is I just say, Jesus, you see everything and you know everything. And sometimes I'm blind to even the things that I'm doing that distance me from you. Will you show me if there's something in my life that's a spiritual flashbang? And then help me turn from that and head in a new direction. Obedience, living and loving like Jesus brings joy. Disobedience distances us from joy. I think another thing we need to do in order to um, have joy in our lives is to ask for it. When was the last time when you prayed, you say, Jesus, fill me with joy? I don't know. I ask for a lot of practical things. I'm like, help the church to grow. Help people in the church to grow. Help me to have a good attitude. Help me to be a good husband. These are all good things to ask for. But I think sometimes we need to ask for spiritual things that really will affect every practical thing in our life. Jesus said, many times you don't have because you don't ask. The book of James tells us sometimes we ask for stupid things, and that's why we don't have it. But Jesus wants us to have joy. He says right here in this passage. So why don't we ask for it? Say, Jesus, fill my life with joy. Help me to pursue you so I can experience 
your joy. And then maybe there's a moment in your life where you say, I'm ready to become a student of the way that Jesus lived and loved. Jesus said that when we come to him and we say, I want to be a student of the way that you lived and loved, he'll fill us with his Holy Spirit to empower us to live and love like he did. Because the things that he asks are impossible without his strength. Maybe what you need to be reminded of is God's love, Jesus' love for you. And so sometimes I just stop in the middle of the day and I say, Jesus, will you remind me that I am loved? Darby has this thing where no matter where she goes, she finds the heart shape in things. Like she's walking down the sidewalk and she's like, there's a heart. I'm like, that's a wad of gum. And she's like, no, look at it from this angle. It's a heart shape. And every time she sees a heart somewhere, she's like, that's God reminding me of his love. There are probably things all around you all the time that are reminding you of God's love, and we tend to miss it. For me, it's a little bit weirder, but I find four-leaf clovers everywhere I go. And um, when I find a four-leaf clover, it's like God unexpectedly reminding me that he loves me. Now, I don't expect that yours is going to be a heart shape or a four-leaf clover, but it may be something small that you see all the time. And it's God's way of saying, I love you. Don't forget. Because when we forget that Jesus loves us, it leads to every other problem and issue in our life. And finally, we need to become students of the way that Jesus lived and loved. We need to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that record the life of Jesus and say, how did Jesus treat people? How did Jesus have a relationship with his father and with other people? And we need to model that life. Because when we do, we experience the love of God and we experience the joy of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that the Christian life is not grin and bear it and die. Thank you that the Christian life is joy now and forever. I'm thankful that you don't just want to get me to where you are. You won't came to where I am. And you want to put heaven in me to change the world that I'm in. Lord Jesus, we pray that you will fill our lives with joy. That we will be reminded of your love. That it won't just be a theological concept that we say, that sounds nice that God loves us. But it will be a present reality that we experience every day. We know that God is with us and for us and that he loves us. And that gives us the security to love others. And I pray all these things like I believe Jesus would pray. Amen. Amen.